0: Hey everyone, welcome to a whole new season of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is Soleil Ho, food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. In 2018, she replaced Michael Bauer as one of the most important restaurant critics in the country. Since then, she's brought her own brand of criticism to the job, addressing issues like colonialism and toxic work environments with as much intelligence and passion as she does the food. On today's episode, we'll learn all about her family background.
1: You know, my family often, you know, we're Vietnamese and so we're very comfortable eating whole fish and whole shellfish and seafood and sucking the heads of prawns is like part of, part of dinner. How she
0: deals with the responsibilities of being a critic.
1: I had to take that seriously as someone with power. Um, I can't just, like, you know, sh- fire up hot takes willy-nilly. I have to think about, like, what is this adding up to?
0: And her own anxieties about spending too much money on food.
1: It, I will agonize over a kombucha if it's, you know, if it's $5 as opposed to $3. I just, I think about it for a long time before I buy it. Like, I'm I'm that kind of person.
0: So, without further ado, here is my session with Soleil Ho.
1: Hi.
0: Hi, how's it going? Good. So nice to have you on my podcast, finally.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sorry. This is my weird hole where I do recordings, so I just wanted to wave before I...
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, this is not a visual podcast, so you don't have to worry about being outed as a food (laughs) critic. Um, Well, I got to talk to you on my Instagram Live, but that was a little more casual. That wasn't lunch therapy. So, you know, you're about to be analyzed in a deep, profound way.
1: (laughs) I'm so excited.
0: Yeah, well... First of all, I just wanted to ask how, how's life? Like, how are you doing? I mean, I I feel like things are so crazy right now and you're in San Francisco and I'm curious how things are there.
1: Things are really good. I feel like there's an air of hope here because they just opened up vaccinations for everyone who is 16 and up, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so people are finding their appointments and more and more people that I know are getting vaccinated, at least their first shot. And you know, even before that, restaurant workers were getting vaccinated already. So mm-hmm. it feels good. I've made a ton of restaurant reservations already. I'm really great. excited to get back out there.
0: That's so great. I mean, I just went out to dinner. Craig and I, my partner Craig and I celebrated our 15-year anniversary together and we went to Republic here in LA. Have
1: you ever been there? I haven't, no, but congratulations.
0: Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, it was um so strange to be out to dinner. Cause I mean, I'm sure you've been eating out. Um, but for us, like we've, we've just not really gone to restaurants during the pandemic. We did take out a lot. Um, but yeah, it was odd, but honestly it was great. It was so nice to be in a restaurant again and to see people and, you know, it was outside, but under a tarp. So that felt good.
1: I know it's, it's very funny. I am so excited to never eat takeout again for at least a year that that's ideal.
0: So how have you been doing it? I mean, I feel like I probably asked you this before, but since we're, this is a different format, I'll ask you again, like, how have you been dealing with COVID in terms of going to restaurants, reviewing them and doing your job?
1: Well, Indoor dining is open right now but I just didn't feel ready to do that just for health reasons and also just I couldn't in good conscience re- recommend that that diners and like readers do that as well because mm-hmm. I you know you're responsible as someone with a platform for modeling behavior that is supposed to be normalized and I had to think really long and hard about like what behavior is right right now mm-hmm. um so for a long time, yeah, I did take out sometimes very rarely delivery and I would go outdoors when it was okay here in the Bay area. Um, and I had to let go of a lot of the presumptions that I had before this about like, what is fair game, right? For a okay. critic to evaluate. Um Everyone's, I mean, you can tell even from like interpersonal relationships, right? Like everyone is insane right now. Everyone is on the brink. And in a sense, you have to extend that to people who are still working in restaurants and other sort of like retail, whatever, right now where you have to cut them some slack. And that means that the sort of traditional kind of like pseudo antagonistic relationship between critics Mm -hmm. and restaurants just isn't quite there. And I don't know when it will be okay for us to write negative reviews again, but um, I know it's coming. And I think it's very contingent on how well people are vaccinated and how stable the industry will be. I don't know who the first one to do it will be. Mm -hmm. Um, That'll be a really interesting thing to watch.
0: Well, also in terms of criteria, it feels like in 2021, what makes a restaurant worthy of criticism might not be the food. It might be like the behavior of the restaurant or, you know, other factors now I feel like are going to enter into the equation. And, you know, I, I I don't know if that's something you've, I think, I feel like you have actually done that in some of your reviews, you know, talked about, um, you know, the culture of the restaurant, the culture of the the, the Kitchen and how the staff is treated, and so I just feel like I'm just thinking, right now, about restaurants that are behaving badly in terms of you know secretly holding, letting diners dine in there when it wasn't okay, and things like that. Like, is that fair game to criticize, or is that outside the purview of a restaurant critic?
1: I think it is fair game to bring up because it's an indicator, right, of other sort of safety measures that might have more direct relationship to you individually. certainly like the way a restaurant treats its workers has a trickle effect on like how you will experience the restaurant um mm-hmm. you know i think a lot of them are they do a good job of hiding that like for example we think about like michelin starred restaurants and how intense the kitchens are and how awful they can be for workers mm-hmm. and yet they produce some of the most you know um broadly considered to be the most beautiful most uh, pleasurable wonderful food in the world um and i think At the same time, though, like this will affect, you know, lapses in safety will and can have a really detrimental effect on the population broadly. And I think more and more people are understanding that. Um, At the same time, like I also don't want to diminish the idea that certainly while I've been out, there have been so many bad actors on the diner side. that, Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to figure out, like, is it right to criticize a restaurant for you know letting diners not like not like letting them keep their masks off when servers approach mm-hmm. because you're just tired of having to have those confrontations and like you know so many of those confrontations end in fights or like end in like people leaving or no tips or like you know really detrimental effects and so so our relationships to each other in terms of the sort of transactional relationship between hospitality professionals and diners have become really intense and strange and strained during this pandemic
0: it was funny because i went to palm springs with my friends ryan and jonathan who are in our pod like we have a small pod of very close friends that we've seen and they hadn't gone out to dinner at all and um jonathan is so conscientious and you know one of the most enlightened just very sensitive people i know and so his thing was like well i'll go out but we have to wear our masks like Anytime a waiter comes over, anytime a busboy comes over, anytime anytime they refill your water glass. So it was almost like a comedy scene from like an old slapstick movie where it's like anytime like somebody passed our table, like Jonathan, we get the mask on, we get all our masks on and then like take them all off and then put them back on. And you know, it was it, it got to the point where it was like, this might not be as fun as we thought it was gonna be. Um, but uh, on the other hand, when we went to Republique the other night, there were little signs next to the table that said, please wear your mask when the server comes over. And yet nobody in the restaurant, I mean, the entire outdoor dining room was maskless. Nobody was wearing a mask. So it's a little confusing too, I think. Are you still there? Hello? Hi.
1: Hi. <laughs> what happened? Sorry, Did, I have no idea what happened. Oh, I
0: thought maybe I offended you by talking about, you know, not wearing a mask at the table when a waiter <laughs> came over. Um, Sorry. No, no, it was just funny because it got so quiet and it was one of those I could, you know, moments where I was terrified that I said something really offensive, but I don't think I did.
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I think Zoom just kicked me off for some reason. Oh,
0: okay. Well, I actually forgot to say, I'm a little rusty right now as a lunch therapist. So I forgot to, to explain the format to you in case you weren't familiar. But the first 10 minutes are where we banter, which we just did. And then I will ask you what you had for lunch, and we'll use that as a prompt to explore your psychology. Perfect. Okay. Well, I feel like we're at that moment now. I mean, it's been nine minutes, but since we had that break, I feel like we can just jump right into it. So, Soleil, what did you have for lunch today?
1: Today, I threw some old salad greens in a bowl and then I put a roasted halved prawn on top. Um, It was really buttery. And then I just sort of let the prawns, like head juices, drip into the greens and threw a couple slices of like baguette on the side, and that
0: was lunch. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's a lot to work with. I think the, <laughs> <laughs> the image that's, that's singing the most for me is the head juices dripping onto the green. Somehow, I feel like that's revealing, and maybe we'll get into that. Um, but to start, I guess the first question I sometimes ask this is, how conscious were you of the fact that you were coming on this podcast when you made this lunch, or is this just a lunch you would make anyway?
1: This is a lunch I would make anyway, especially because many of my lunches are just leftovers mm-hmm. of work dinners that I do. And so, you know, last night, those those were all components from something that I ate last night.
0: Okay. Was it something that you that you cooked or something that you got from a restaurant?
1: Something that I got from a restaurant and I did eat all of it cold.
0: Mm. You ate it last night cold or you ate it this today cold?
1: Everything but the salad was hot last night. Okay. And... It, I did not bother to heat anything up today. <laughs> Got it. And
0: was the, the combination of salad and prawn the same combination that you ate last night? Or was this a, a new invention that you combined different elements together? The latter. Oh, ah, okay. Very interesting. Well, what I mean, you know, it's funny. Again, I'm a bit rusty as a lunch therapist. So I, but I have to remember that I'm it's not my job to analyze your lunch. It's my job to find out what you think your lunch means. So let's start with the prawn. What is what does a prawn evoke for you in your life?
1: To me, it's something that I've been working on actually recently, thinking about ethics and thinking about the kinds of foods that I want to eat. And so often. Right now, I'm thinking about how shrimp is a really problematic food for a lot of reasons, right? Like shrimp that is imported from Southeast Asia, for instance, it, its sourcing is really obscured and can often obscure enslavement, um, forced labor, that sort of thing among fishermen who are, you know, who are forced to harvest these shrimp from the oceans for free, um, And so for me, it's such an indulgence to eat a prawn or a shrimp. And often I'll have to ask. Um, I I try really hard to ask servers or chefs or whoever, like, where did this come from? Do you know if this came from Europe or the U.S. or Southeast Asia, that sort of thing? And um, yeah, so that was one big part of it. And uh, that's why it's such an indulgence for me. The other thing is like whole prawns are very evocative for me. Mm -hmm. They have a really distinct smell to them, aroma, especially as I mentioned before, the head juice Mm -hmm. is something that is so hard to replicate in, you know, you can't fake it. You just have to eat the head. (laughs) Um, And it just smells so like it just makes your mouth water to imagine it. There's nothing else like it. It's like an egg yolk. You know, you can't, you can't like, you just can't fake it.
0: So there are two elements there that I think are interesting in terms of who you are. And the first is the ethical. Uh, And I'm curious, like, how far back does that go? I mean, were you a little kid who started crying when, like, the lobster came out of the lobster tank and put on the (laughs) table in front of you? Or or when did you really start to grow a consciousness about the ethics of eating?
1: So I was waiting in line for the midnight showing of Spider-Man at the um, theater in Union Square. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. very iconic theater that all the teens go to. Sure. And I brought a copy of this book that I picked up at the Virgin Megastore randomly. Um, another sort of dinosaur of that time. And it was, it, it was an anthology called Everything You Know is Wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the essays in it was about the, the, the meat industry. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I was, gosh, I think I was 14 and I had no idea, no inkling, didn't think about it at all. And I think that was sort of the time that that sort of era was also when people started reading like Fast Food Nation and other books like that. Um, and so for me, I was just sitting there reading, just increasingly shocked about the industry and like what animals went through so that I could have a burger. Um, and that was the moment I became a vegetarian. Mm. at least for a few years.
0: Right. Cause yeah, you just ate a prawn for lunch. So (laughs) you're not a vegetarian anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but back then there weren't that many options if you were trying to eat ethically, um, and also trying to eat meat or seafood, you just, you know, um, we didn't really think about it that much. And especially as a kid, you don't really have much choice in what people buy at the grocery store. So I just chose to abstain.
0: And did you grow up in a family that um, was conscientious about this kind of stuff? Or did did it not really matter? Like, in terms of what kind of eggs they bought? Or, you know, were they buying? I mean, I don't even know if this was going on when I was growing up, but like free range versus organic versus or or was it not an issue in your family?
1: That wasn't an issue. At that point, I think now my mom's pretty hippy dippy and Mm -hmm. she definitely tries to buy local greens and organic stuff to the extent that she can in puerto vallarta mexico Mm -hmm. um cool (laughs) yeah that's where she lives um i I definitely i I think all of our like collective attitudes evolved uh, at about the same time although i was probably the most extreme and i'm also very anxious and so (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) um one of the things that I have struggled with in the past is just the very strong desire to never hurt anybody mm-hmm. and, you know, for good and for bad. Right. Um, so that was a thing that I, that, that added a dimension to my, to my diet that was very harrowing and urgent and um, full of gravitas
0: well that, I think we're going to come back to that throughout the conversation. I have a feeling, but the other part of what you talked about with the prawn was that it was nostalgic for you, right, or that it can remind me of what you said it was a little while ago, but you said that it was um something about eating a prawn and eating the head brought something back for you, right?
1: right. It's really evocative. um you know, my family often you know, we're Vietnamese. And so we're very comfortable eating whole fish and whole shellfish and seafood and sucking the heads of prawns is like part of part of dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, when you stir fry it with like salted egg yolk or, you know, make salt and pepper shrimp, you keep the head on because that's the best part. You just eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, when I was a server, for instance, at American-style restaurants that served prawns and shrimp with their heads on. And I saw all the heads just kind of not touched and left on the side of the plate. I would collect them (laughs) so I could have a snack later.
0: It's actually very funny because I, for a very long time, have known that chefs and smart food people love to suck the head of a prawn. But if I'm being honest, I don't think I've ever done it correctly. Like, I feel like I've never, like, quite gotten in there enough. Or, you know, I feel like I'm not... (laughs) Not, I'm not sucking enough, I don't know I, I mean can you describe <laughs> what you're supposed to do with the head of a prawn that to really experience it? like are you supposed to crack it open or are you supposed to bite into it or or you just like suck like through a straw?
1: I mean you twist it off and it depends on how it's cooked too right If yeah. it's like fried or like uh if it's floured or covered in cornstarch and fried it's gonna be crispy like a potato chip and you just eat it
0: entirely. eat the head the whole head right okay um
1: but if it's just sauteed and you know the 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 shell isn't super edible or like easy to eat. I normally I eat it kind of like how you would eat those freeze pops.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, you
1: kind of like push it
0: oh, into your mouth. Okay, and like flatten it. Got it. Wow. Okay. I think you need to do like a video demonstration on YouTube or TikTok, <laughs> and it will go viral, and you'll retire from your food critic job and be a TikTok star.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can sell enough merch to make that happen. That's Maybe. A lot.
0: Um, okay, wait. we have a lot to get into here. Because I feel like, you know, I feel like when you do interviews, you're mostly talking from the perch of a food critic. But I want to learn more about like growing up and how this all started and eventually gets the place where you became this food critic. So you grew up in New York. Is that right?
1: For the most part, yes.
0: And so as a kid, I mean, did you grow up in a, you mentioned coming from a Vietnamese family, was food very important in your family?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was broadly, right. My extended family would gather at my grandparents' house every weekend. Um, and they live in Illinois, actually. And so we would travel there for special occasions and and have pho and things like that at my grandparents' house. Mm-hmm. Um and my mom was in the fashion industry, which is why we were in New York. And she was also really into gourmet magazine. And she was, you know, a gourmand in in many senses of the word. And she, on the rare occasion, she was a single mom, on the rare occasion that she would cook dinner, um, it would always be different. It would always be something from a magazine or from a cookbook that she picked up. She loves the William sonoma cookbooks, you know, <laughs> that are very specific, sure. like soups and dim sum and Asian mm-hmm. Um And so she would often just make something new every time she did it, because for her, it was experimentation. It was fun. It was a way to express herself in a different sort of format than her daily life.
0: Well, I always wonder this because I grew up in a family where nobody cooked, so there was no home cooking. We just ate out at like TGI Fridays and... (laughs) Uh, I I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida for part of my childhood. And a lot of athletes had restaurants there. So we would go to Wilt Chamberlain's one night, Pete Rose's another night. It was a very odd childhood. But my question for you, this isn't my therapy session, um, (laughs) is what did you appreciate this food when you were growing up? Like when you had your your grandparents and your mom's cooking, like, did you understand that this was special or did it just feel like everyday food for you?
1: it was special. I was pretty food fixated for a lot of my childhood already. Um, it was one of the things I looked forward to all the time. And, and yet I was picky for a lot of my early years too. Like Mm -hmm. for instance, you know, pho is a noodle soup with, you know, chicken or steak and sauces and herbs and onions and all that stuff. And for a long time, I just ate it with noodles and broth, Mm -hmm. which is so barbaric when I think (laughs) about it. Oh, my poor grandmother. Um, but I, I loved it still, you know, it it didn't mean that I didn't, you know, enjoy it. And I think my family all made a big deal about food and, um, we certainly put it on a pedestal. So that's Hmm. how I grew up.
0: Why did you just eat it with noodles and broth?
1: (laughs) I just didn't like any specks in my food.
0: Ah, uh, interesting. Well, I have to, I have to say, <laughs> as part of my research, I looked at your website or maybe it was your Wikipedia, but it talks about bringing lunches to school and being, I don't know if it, if it said that you were embarrassed by them or if that's something in there, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Actually my mom would make sandwiches and, yeah. and such things for me and put like, you know, the, the ruffles in the plastic bag, you know, when she had the time. right um, And For me, the worst thing was, like, it it spoiled me, actually. Like, our food was so good at home Mm -hmm. that having school lunch was, like, an atrocity to me. Um, I, you know, went, I came up in the New York City public school system, and I had school lunch, which was disgusting in the 90s. Um, Just really strange chicken nuggets that just looked like, like organ transplants <laughs> and like that awful frozen pizza and just weird things like, you know, the Jamaican patties are good though. Those are good. <laughs> um, but for a long time, I didn't eat lunch because I just couldn't deal with it. I was just so grossed out. Um, I would just sit there. <laughs> um, nah. I didn't tell my mom either. Cause like, you know, she didn't have time to pack lunch usually. Um, and so for me, it was, uh, it was a very I had a weird relationship to lunch actually. And oh. on the rare occasion that she would be able to pack leftovers, I was actually super psyched because I could actually eat good food. Oh, great. Oh, well, maybe
0: I misread that. I don't know where, what I was looking at, but so what were, I mean, you talked about your mom cooking from the William Sonoma cookbook. So like, what were some of the iconic dishes that your mom would make for you growing up?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, there weren't any, that's the thing is she never repeated a meal. Really? So I can't even remember. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. Um, that's the funny thing is that it's all just a, a melange of things. Hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Do you have any memory of like a a thing or, or a a dish that she would make or that she made that you, that stands out? I mean, you don't have to, this is your therapy session. so
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to remember. Um, Oh my God. You know, I think, okay. There was one dish that she would repeat the one, and it was garlic shrimp with rice. Mm,
0: well, that's that, that's perfect for our session because that's what you had for lunch.
1: True. Oh, you're so right. Yeah. Um, it was easy. You know, she would just make some minced garlic, uh, sear the shrimp, throw the garlic in with some olive oil and salt and pepper, and be done. And that was, you know, I got my sister and I to shut up. So that was that was a very fast dinner that she would make um, once in a while.
0: I and mean, was it just you, your sister, and your mom living together? And so, your mom worked in the fashion industry. So, was was she? I mean, this is a stupid question, but was she very into fashion herself?
1: Yes, she has always been a very glamorous woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Asian listeners might appreciate this tidbit. She is a. She was born in the year of the snake, and that says everything. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, there you go. Um, what what does that say?
1: It means. I hope I'm not canceled for this, but snakes are very, uh, appearance focused. Um, they're very charismatic, um, and they're very aesthetically inclined. And so she would wear designer clothes and, you know, she, you, you have to keep up, right. You can't show up to your, um, catalog job looking like, you know, like we do right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, during the pandemic, um, you have to be totally done. You have to be tight. You have to have everything pressed and perfect. And that was her.
0: And did she, I mean, it's an interesting thing to work in the fashion industry and also be very into food because I feel like there's such a, you know, classic, um, you know, onus put on eating a lot if you're in fashion, but was she tormented at all about her weight or eating or anything? Or was she, did she have a good balance in terms of being able to wear the clothes that she wanted and eat the food that she wanted?
1: I think she's naturally really petite. Uh Um, but yeah I, I feel like she she used to say that i made her fat she's not she's like you know she, she says it in the way that it's not real but um certainly like she would drink slim fast and stuff at lunch and oh really like okay i remember seeing that in the fridge but um i never sampled it myself
0: my mom had slim fast and she had my mom went, went through every diet that like was mm. popular in the 80s and 90s i mean weight watchers uh, the zone all that stuff so I'm familiar with slim fast, um okay, so you grew up in New York. I'm just trying to like get a paint a portrait here that <laughs> takes us on our journey because you you went through a lot of stages before becoming a food critic you You were also a chef right
1: mhm yeah, I've worked like every essentially every position at restaurants
0: and before that though you you were in high school in in the city and then you went to college, I saw on again. I should be careful with my sources, but I I saw that you went to Grinnell in Iowa. Is that right? Yes. And what was that like?
1: Um, It was different. I, you know, a lot of my friends who I went to high school with went to schools in the Northeast, like Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts and um, Connecticut, right. And New York state, but I wanted to get out and see Mm -hmm. something else. And I think, I think for me, it was like the post nine eleven like thing, because I was um, a freshman in high school when mm-hmm. the the terrorist attacks happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to Stuyvesant, which was like right there. Um, and I wanted to just go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I was just over New York. Um, I could have written a uh, Why I'm Leaving New York essay when I was 17, because <laughs> I had a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, but I, I, I wanted to go just anywhere else um, and just kind of live quietly for a little bit and Grinnell population like 3,000
0: mm-hmm. was that place that's really interesting by the way I just fact-checked myself because I, I felt bad because isn't it a, like a bad trope to say that um people who you know like I think like in the Asian community or any actually any community anybody who comes from a immigrant background or any other kind of background where they were embarrassed by their lunch isn't that sort of being re-examined right now Sort of as,
1: yeah, it is. Um, and you know, I realize too that like I've probably used that trope in my writing, and yes. really, like, what happens, I thought about it. I, I've like done so much soul searching about that trope too, and like how as a writer I have benefited from it. Um, it didn't happen that much actually yeah, in real it's, life.
0: It's on your Wikipedia, that's why I just wanted to make sure I said that because oh, yeah, I didn't
1: it. update the. I have never even touched it. I don't
0: know. All right. All right. I just had to clear that up because I was feeling so self-conscious that I asked you that and I'm like, oh my God, did I ask a really offensive question? But then I'm like, oh wait, it's not offensive because it was on her Wikipedia. (laughs) Although you don't control your Wikipedia. So whoever wrote that is very offensive.
1: (laughs) Yes, we we can blame them.
0: Okay. Anyway, back to Grinnell. So you said 9-11, you wanted to get out of New York, but I'm curious as a food lover in Iowa, what was that like? I mean, what did you eat?
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. um, I struggled to be honest, because again, school lunch is awful, terrible. Um, The quality was pretty good, I think at Grinnell Mm -hmm. and we were certainly paying for it, but I still, it just wasn't good enough for me. And I realized at the time, I don't know, I think my adolescence has been has been me slowly coming to terms with how pompous I am Mm. because and like how highfalutin I was because I was just like oh god burgers again gross (laughs) right like this pizza is nothing like home and I would you know bring I would go to Murray's on my breaks and buy so much cheese and bring it to school with me I'd put it on my (laughs) carry-on
0: so you had you had a real um What's the word? Aesthetic. I mean, your, you your palate was already starting to emerge as being picky and, and highly selective.
1: Absolutely. And I would cook all the time. And I realized then that the things that I knew as, as a home cook were things that most people didn't know. Like mm-hmm. I, I remember still to this day, making something, I don't remember what, um, and a friend was asking me how I made it. And I said, oh, just like, I braised it. And she was like, what is what is braising?
0: Hmm. Interesting. You know? Yeah, and I, I love like, braising. Oh,
1: people don't know that. And I think at the time too, I was probably reading your blog and, oh, <laughs> and wow. using your recipes too. Uh,
0: this is a conflict of interest. So we should probably... End here. I'm just kidding. But you shouldn't read your therapist blog. It's very bad. Well, that's that's flattering. I mean, it's fascinating too because I'm thinking of Iowa as being a very writerly place because of the Iowa writers workshop. Is that was that affiliated at all with Grinnell or is that completely separate?
1: Completely separate, but I think it is an easier place to get into your head, you know, mm-hmm. and concentrate on on work. That was the idea anyway, although I did party a lot. So oh.
0: well, you know. I'm, I'm curious about the writing side of you though, because obviously your job is twofold. It's you, you have an amazing palette and you know a lot about food, but you're also an incredible writer. So when did the writing start to emerge as something that you were interested
1: in? Well, thank you. Um, I think as a writer, I didn't think of myself as a writer for a long time, right? Like a, capital w writer i i did start a food blog my what was it called uh kitchen bitch
0: i don't think i knew that that's a surprise oh
1: cool uh kitchen bitch dot wordpress.com and um that was when i started writing like for fun Mm -hmm. you know i would like post recipes and things like that with my like digital camera because that's what we had and it was really fun and cool and i uh I I I slowly started to think about what it meant to write about food, right? Mm-hmm. From there. Um, it was so fun for me. And I, I was so my my blog writing was very obscene. It was very um loosey-goosey. It just like didn't matter in a way that my schoolwork mattered. And so that was really refreshing for me.
0: mm mm-hmm. um, And what year was that?
1: Oh gosh. Uh what year was that? That's a good question when did I graduate? What day is it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I <have> no idea. <laughs> no
1: idea. Uh, no, I think it was 2007.
0: Okay. That's, that's right around when I started my food blog, which was 2006. So right of the same era, um, which was really the dawn of food blogging.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember once. Oh my God. I think, uh, the folks behind the gastronomy blog, mm-hmm. uh, commented on one of my posts once and I like lost my mind. <laughs> oh my I was God. just like, what? You know, they were celebrities. Like you were a celebrity to me.
0: It's so funny. Cause it's like, now there's such a new generation of TikTokers and Instagrammers. And it's like, oh, like now I understand what I was like 15 years ago. Cause I feel like I've gotten so old, but at the time <laughs> it was like, oh, like I was at the, at the height of like technology at that moment. And like, I just got in at the right time. You know, I I don't, I don't know if my perspective was so amazing, but it was more just like, I was the right voice at the right time and the right medium at the right moment. Um, But thank you for saying that I was a celebrity. That's so nice.
1: (laughs) It's true. But yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And, and the new generation is very confusing to me. And yet I. I still find their content very exciting, so I know. it's, you know, it's
0: tough. It's, it's hard because it's like I should learn TikTok, but I just I think that part of me is dead. It's like <laughs> no, I can't learn a whole new thing. I'm barely like learning how to do a podcast in GarageBand. So, um, all right, it's late. Like, we have a lot to talk about. We have like you know we're only halfway through, but I we have a lot to cover. So you at you're at Grinnell, and did you have a sense of what you wanted to do when you were in college? What career you wanted to have?
1: um you know I wanted to get into quantum physics theoretical physics wow
0: okay so you were not very ambitious or intellectual I'm just kidding because that's oh, did you drop out again
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh you're there oh, I am here oh okay you're there no I was just making a joke I don't know if you heard it um but it's okay quantum physics that's that's hard
1: yeah, um, I was really into reading, you know, books about string theory and all that stuff and, um, and and thinking about just how, you know, how the universe is put together and, and about like alternate realities and all that stuff. Um, I ended up being a history major instead because I got really into the history of like social movements and thinking about just all of the things that I was not taught in high school mm-hmm. um, about like civil rights movements and black power and about like uh, revolutionary movements in Latin America and Russia and everywhere else. Um, that was so fascinating to me. And so that's, I diverted pretty hard.
0: Well, it makes me think about the criteria for being a food critic because so many people who might be listening to this might be like, ooh, what do I have to study to become a food critic? And what I'm hearing as you're talking about college and just things in general, it's like you had a curiosity and a you know, a, a, a seeking quality where you wanted to know more and you wanted to learn about everything. So it's like, that's the quality that you probably want to have as a food critic. It's just intense curiosity, intense, you know, wanting to learn as much as you can about whatever you're writing about. And it also makes me think about your lunch and the prawn and like it being connected to sustainability and and thinking about the ethics of it, That that looking beneath the surface is important to you
1: yeah no i think you're right um for me if you you know what it's like to read a review of a restaurant by someone who isn't curious Mm -hmm. you know i think we've all read those reviews just look at yelp or look at like sort of the you know the there are certain food critics that are like that Mm -hmm. um that i don't need to name and that's not fun to read Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I would agree. Like curiosity is such an important part of, of learning how to do this job and for doing it in an engaging way.
0: And it's so interesting. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you have anxiety, and I wonder about that. And being a food critic, we're sort of jumping ahead here, but I'm, I am curious. Like when you do have a hot take on a restaurant, and you, or you do have something to say and something you know potentially controversial does that give you anxiety or does writing sort of shield you from your anxiety?
1: (laughs) It gives me anxiety. Yeah. I mean, especially now where readers can directly reach out to you via email Mm -hmm. or Twitter or Instagram and tell you how wrong you are. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a huge part of it. I'm sure your comment sections have been very interesting in the past too. Oh yeah, for sure. And like what gave me comfort was talking to Ruth Reichel actually, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the former New York times food critic, where she said she couldn't sleep before her columns were published the Mm -hmm. night before she just stayed up worrying she got something wrong or she fucked something up or she's being unfair or whatever and I think that gave me so much strength like oh okay like someone who is as established and as knowledgeable as her felt the same way so I didn't feel like such a you know a dummy
0: (laughs) well it's also interesting now because I feel like the the subject that's most interesting to people right now is sort of what we were talking about earlier, the ethics and the sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, like the wokeness of a restaurant, maybe that's not the best word, but I'm just thinking like in how the staff is treated, things like that. And I, I also imagine now as a critic, like you're in a position where if you were to write about that, and I think you probably have, like you could potentially really do damage to somebody's reputation or somebody's career. And so that that's probably a different
1: way of, Thinking of your role as a food critic, right? Oop, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. I just have to keep. I have
0: to keep testing. It's like, okay. Maybe I have to just drop it. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's good. My internet connection is definitely very unstable. Okay. Um, it is a really different way of looking at things, but I also think part of what like the power of being in mass media is that you normalize things. Mm-hmm. You, you are the one who helps people understand like these are the terms of the argument. This is what's okay. These are the social mores. Um, and it has so much to do with your own personal ethics and your values and like really taking the time to think about what your ethics and values are is really important to me. Mm-hmm. I think most people don't. Um, not to say that they're bad for not doing it, but we don't get the chance to right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't have the luxury of sitting back and thinking like, what do I care about? What kind of world do I want? Um, And for me, I have to take that seriously as someone with power. um, I can't just like, you know, fire up hot takes willy nilly. I have to think about like, what is this adding up to, Mm -hmm. right? Like what kind of world do I want to put into practice and speak into being with my work?
0: Absolutely. And, And you do such a good job of it. I mean, I think that's the other thing is like, there's such an authority to your voice, um, which is interesting. I mean, I, I always think that's so fascinating, the difference between an authorial voice and then like a real life voice. And you know, <laughs> not that yours sounds that different, but, but even just talking about you having anxiety, it's like reading you on the page. I wouldn't necessarily know that, you know? Um, and so I, I wonder what the role of writing is for you. Does it, does it make you or how has writing factored in your life in terms of, you know, it being an important outlet for you?
1: Well, I think the cool thing about essays and nonfiction writing and, you know, just essay writing is the essay as a format is a way to figure stuff out. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's a way of plotting out all the things you think about a topic and then weaving them together in the process. And for me, like the essay is a process of understanding and coming to understand how I really feel about something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a way to just put it down on paper Um, Mm -hmm. whereas like when you have anxiety about many things all at once, it's also, it's just flying around in your head, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. a swarm of birds that each one is like swoop in on you at any moment. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you put it on paper, you can see their relation to each other and better understand, you know, how they work, why they work and just what the meaning of it all is. If that makes sense.
0: It makes so much sense. And it's also sort of like how I think about art, like, you know, taking the chaos of the world and just like putting it, organizing it in some way, whether it's visual or musical or literary or, you know, that that, that's sort of the function of art. Um, So that makes a lot of sense to me. It's funny because I started Lexapro recently for my anxiety, and I think it's made me a worse writer for that that (laughs) very reason, (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, oh, I feel so calm now. I'm just going to play Nintendo. I'm not going to write anything, Um, which is you kind of need the anxiety, I think, to force yourself to write. Um, so from college, was that when you went straight into being a chef?
1: Sort of. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I worked at a restaurant throughout college, um, as a server and then, you know, the economy crashed and then I was like, oh no, what the hell? What do I do with a history degree? Nothing turns out. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my then boyfriend and I went to work on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota. Okay. Um, that was fun. And I learned a lot about <laughs> organic techniques and about um just like what it means, right, to shepherd a broccoli from a seed to a CSA box, mm-hmm. right? Um and all the work that goes into it. That was really important for me, even though it was an intensely unpleasant experience mm-hmm. um, because just of uh, the boss and the work conditions were like awful, but it still was like so educational. And then from there I ended up moving to Minneapolis since that was where my then boyfriend was from. And I didn't have any desire to go back home to New York because it was too expensive for for what. I don't know what I would have done there. Um, And I started working in restaurants and also contributing to a startup online kind of food magazine called Heavy Table. And they're the ones who really uh, got me on the food writing track, I think.
0: That's so cool. So you you were in the industry, but you're also... In the food writing, you're starting you, were kind of having your feet in both worlds. And do you feel like your experience working in restaurants and on farms informed your work as a food writer?
1: For sure. I mean, it definitely gave me a sort of entree into the world of the food industry that I think most food writers don't get to have, like in the moment, mm-hmm. too. Um, <laughs> you know, like chef culture, for instance, was a huge part of my adulthood. And having conversations with dishwashers like all the time right like undocumented folks from like Ecuador and Mexico and talking to them talking to them about their experiences um people don't often do that and Mm -hmm. I think it really helped shape my perspective on labor for instance and on art and craft and what we consider to be craft and also just the whole um The lionization of chefs was very interesting to me at the Mm -hmm. time, too, because I I worked with chefs. I knew them, you know, warts and all. I also knew how much work it took to uphold them and enable them to do what they did. Um, You know, a whole whole infrastructure of humans and labor are, are involved in that.
0: Well, it makes me think a little bit about like objectivity versus subjectivity in terms of, you know, the plate of food in front of you. has like a piece of, you know, chicken on it with a sauce and like some mashed potatoes. And it's like, you eat it in one context, uh, where it's like you're at somebody's house and then you eat it in another context where you're in a kitchen where, or you're in a restaurant where the chef is like screaming and red faced and it's (laughs) exactly the same plate of food, but it probably totally transforms your experience of it. Right.
1: Right. But at the same time, I think there we have only recently begun to push up against the school of food writing and food critics who only wanted to consider what was on the plate, regardless of context, Mm -hmm. you know, like having that be their objective um, metric by which they held the whole restaurant. Um, Mm -hmm. and for me, from the beginning, I wanted to think about the whole story and about all the sort of discourses that intersect with that plate, all the reasons why that plate is there, the reasons why it looks that way, the reasons why these spices are used, all of that stuff. Right. Um, for me, that's that's the interesting part.
0: And do you feel like going forward that that is going to permanently be a part of food criticism? You know, do you think that that's the way it's shifting, not just for you, but for other critics too?
1: I think so. I mean, I don't know. This is weird. And, and maybe you can help me hash this out. <laughs> because, you know, you've seen in Chicago, for instance, Phil Vitel has left. Um, and you see like other critics like... Uh, in, in phoenix for example like are switching over um and there are a lot of other jobs that are out and a lot of times when people talk about those jobs they talk about wanting to have another me mm-hmm. and that is so wild to me <laughs> like, you know um i don't see what i do as like particularly perfect by any means I, you know um but I do think that for a lot of these editors and hiring pe- you know, pe- people in positions to determine the course of criticism at their individual papers and outlets, um, they see me as representative of a school of thought and a way yeah. of doing things. Um, so if they get their way and they find another me somewhere, um, I think perhaps that will enact a sea change in the way we do criticism. Well, it's just to, weird to like, yeah, have people like want clones of me. I don't know. It's, it's strange.
0: I get it though. I mean, I think it's about the decentralization of white male power in the restaurant world personally. Um, you know, I just, I, for some reason I keep thinking of the French laundry as sort of, which you, you reviewed, right. Am I remembering that right?
1: I did not review.
0: Oh, you did not review. I'm thinking of your review of Chez Panisse, which was also an institution. But I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking of the French Laundry as sort of what was considered the beacon and the like height of American gastronomy during the like '90s, I guess. Um, and how that it sort of almost feels irrelevant now. It almost feels like we're looking at things through a totally different lens, and that all kinds of power structures that were in place are being reexamined and and torn down for the better, you know, to sort of say, wait, whose narrative gets to be dominant in in this industry. And it's, and so I think it makes a lot of sense that the tastemakers should be coming from diverse backgrounds, as opposed to the same hegemonic background that that they've always come from, if if that makes sense.
1: That, I mean, yeah, of course. Um, That's why I have a job. Right. And that's also why I decided to do this in the first place is because, um, being in the position to determine taste is so such a big deal. Um, and I, I certainly see how like the French laundry and like other sort of like institutions like Michelin, for instance, and San Pellegrino's like fifth world's 50 best, and all of them they have, you know, I don't think it's Correct to assume they don't have an agenda and they mm-hmm. don't have subjectivities of their own that they're upholding. Um, I think having them be the only game in town and you know the way that they've sort of poisoned the world of restaurants and made them into like awful workplaces for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a thing that a lot of people who are working in this world are pushing up against, right? Like chefs and cooks are actively trying not to be that um, and not to be star chasers and not to like throw meat at their staff and like harangue Mm -hmm. people just for perceived imperfections um there's more humanity and i think that's also really good
0: yeah it's fascinating like in various industries how toxic behavior sometimes seems inextricably linked to success like i'm thinking right now of scott rudin the producer who just got called out in the Hollywood reporter for throwing things and being violent, but it's like, also like he's one of the most successful producers of all time. And, you know, I think about rest, the restaurant industry and just being a chef at the helm of a restaurant. I mean, you, you think of like Gordon Ramsay as that iconic image of like the screaming chef and it's sort of like, okay, but how do you achieve that third Michelin star in a, in a way that's kind and thoughtful and respectful? I mean, I guess that's sort of like, how does that paradigm shift and how much can you do, I guess, in your role as food critic to change that
1: paradigm? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's about caring about that part, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think about how like Michelin doesn't care about how workers are treated. they It doesn't factor in whether or not you get a star. And because of that, then you are free to do whatever the hell you want mm-hmm. in pursuit of those stars, um, I think about how, like, if there's if if consumers don't care about how fast a production line goes in a chicken slaughterhouse, like it's just going to keep going faster and faster and faster because the only thing that matters is profit mm-hmm. and how cheap they can make the chicken. Um, I think you know there are so many externalities that um, you can make matter as a tastemaker or as a regulatory body that um, you have to choose to care about.
0: It also makes me wonder, like, how do you know, I mean, like, what if you go to like a restaurant that's like a totally hip, cool dining experience, and like you have the most lovely time, the food's delicious, everyone seems happy, the staff seems happy, and you're writing your review, and you get home and you get an email from a server who's like, the chef's a monster, (laughs) we are all cowering in fear every day. I mean, like, how how do you, I mean, is it your job then to investigate that and to examine that? I mean, how far does it go, I guess?
1: That's a really good question. Um, it's not my job, but I do pass that information along to the reporters on staff,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and they will help me dig into it. And like, we'll make calls. I make. I, I talk to so many workers all the time um, who reach out to me. And that's the thing: is like when you make it clear that you care, they will reach out to you. People will come to you and mm-hmm. tell you all the tea. Um, mm-hmm. And and I follow up. And I just make sure like, is this just a disgruntled person? Right. Like, or is this a pattern? And then I talk to as many people as I can. Um, and if it's a story, then I pass it along to someone who can make it a story, you know, um, mm-hmm. that's not the reporting I do. And thankfully I work on a team where, you know, we can, we can split the load essentially. Um, Cause there are some really great investigators on my team too.
0: Well, it's funny. We're almost at the end of our session. This kind of flew by, um, <laughs> but I'm, I, I'm trying to like kind of piece together what we've learned about you a little. I mean, I feel like the, the, the dominant theme for me is curiosity and ethics with a hint of nostalgia. Does that sort of get you pretty much? I mean, I feel like like there's, there's also a little bit, I mean, I feel like you're, you're somebody who maybe holds some cards close to your chest. Is that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that feels accurate.
0: Yeah. I feel like you shared what you wanted to share, but that's totally legitimate. And and our first therapy session together, maybe you'll have to come back for another one and we'll go deeper. But before we end, I always start every session by asking um, what, wait, hold on one second. What time did we start today? We started at two. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was just making sure. I was like, wait, did we start at two 30? I got a little thrown because of we had a pause but okay so we did do a full 50 minute session so i just wanted to make sure everyone knows they got their money's worth but i start every session by asking what you had for lunch but then i end it by asking what are you going to have for dinner
1: oh great okay um i am going to a sushi bar actually okay. A sushi restaurant called Juni. Um, I think I can say that because I'm sure this will air later. Yeah,
0: next week, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we're fine. Um, they're doing outdoor omakase, which I'm very excited to try.
0: Mm, that sounds good. So when you know you're going for sushi for dinner, does that affect I mean, I guess you had fish for lunch. So I mean, but does it um do you normally plan your lunch based on what you're gonna have for dinner?
1: No. <laughs> it's chaos, utter <laughs> chaos.
0: Are you a three meals a day kind of person or is it, um, depends on the day?
1: Oh, absolutely. Three meals. I get so cranky if I'm hungry.
0: So what do you eat in the morning?
1: Usually, um, let's see. I have granola, a lot of fruit. Um, sometimes I will eat just, oh gosh, like avocado toast. I'm a millennial.
0: (laughs) How do you make your avocado toast?
1: So. Um, milk bread if I have it I'll toast it and then I will slice an avocado really thin and fan it out all nice on the toast and then I throw on some powdered kelp um Ooh, and, that's interesting yeah. yeah it's like a you can use it instead of salt and I like that um very savory and then maybe if I'm feeling fancy I'll do an egg but usually not
0: and how do you do the egg
1: oh just sunny side up
0: oh see I feel like that's revealing I mean I feel like You know, just like the the little things you cook for yourself. I mean, the other part of what came up for me when I was listening to you talk was frugality a little bit like the idea of eating the leftovers from last night's meal. I mean, do you find yourself being frugal with food or trying not to waste a lot of food?
1: I am so cheap, Adam. You pinned me. (laughs) I will finally.
0: I cracked the egg. Okay.
1: Yeah. No. I. I will agonize over a kombucha if it's you know, if it's five dollars as opposed to three dollars. I just I think about it for a long time before I buy it. Like I'm I'm that kind of person.
0: Are you that way though? When you're on the job, like do do you pause before getting the thirty dollar caviar supplement?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know you can't really. It's not necessary the caviar I do you know for a long time before the pandemic, I was very frugal about travel to mm-hmm. places, and so I am and also for other reasons, environmental reasons, I'm very much devoted to taking public transit, and so making the transition to having to take cars everywhere during the pandemic because mm-hmm. of safety it was really hard, it's so expensive,
0: yeah, I know um well, it's also it's just making me think about. The ethical stuff. I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get some more time out of you. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. But um, with, with the ethics, like, I guess the question that I wanted to ask you was about like the slippery slip of it all. Like, where do you draw the line with ethics and food? I mean, I know that's a huge question to end on, but you know, when everything sort of feels compromised in some way, like, you know, whether it's, like I got arugula for lunch from this cool place like called cookbook in Echo Park, but it's like, how do I know that the, they're treated well on the farm? I mean, I guess how far do you go with each thing that you eat and buy?
1: Right. I mean, I think that is a really common argument that I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly my husband will bring it up um, because he wants to make sure I don't drive myself insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, he's also just hungry and he wants to eat. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but for me, it's it's it is about like what is the purpose of this, right? And mm-hmm. I have to stand back and think like, am I just trying to drive myself nuts, or do is this is this leading to something, right? Like, does this matter for something? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's a good kind of like self aware question to ask all the time of like, is this just me like doing the bad brain stuff, or is this you know something? <laughs> um, yeah. that matters. This is this part of the story? And that's helped me like really differentiate. And the other thing is like, um, again, like having to stand back and think about what my values are and what kind of world I want to, to make, right. Is it, is it a really important component of this? Um, I don't think it is entirely possible to be ethical under capitalism for sure, but mm-hmm. does that mean you give up or does it mean that you, devote your time and your work to dismantling capitalism and like thinking about all the answers that are alternative to capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think it's easy to give up. And certainly like I have the luxury and the privilege to even dream of alternatives and like spend time like writing about it and thinking about it. But, you know, I think that's my job. That's my obligation. I can't just be driving myself crazy for no reason. Um, If I'm driving myself crazy to make the world better for other people, like that, that feels worth it to me.
0: Well, it was interesting during the pandemic, too, with restaurant dining. I mean, I feel like Helen Rosner wrote an essay maybe for The New Yorker where it was just like, no, it is not okay to eat at restaurants right now, like no matter what. And it was just pretty, you know, it was just it seemed like so line drawn in the sand. Like it's not and I kind of took that seriously. So I was like, okay, it's not it's not ethical because basically you're putting the workers at the restaurants in harm's way, whether or not it's safe for you. It's it's not necessarily safe for them. But I think for a lot of people, they felt like, well, what about the restaurants themselves as institutions, and you know, keeping the restaurants alive, and you know, felt like a lot of ethical things were in the balance, for you know, for food fans and diners everywhere. Um, And I guess for you earlier, you you mentioned that you you had stopped going for health reasons. But if health reasons weren't on the table, would you have also stopped going?
1: Um, No, I mean that's the thing, right? Like I think in the Bay Area where food workers and agricultural workers were prioritized for vaccines. Um, I, I I began to be a lot more comfortable with eating at restaurants when I saw people, you know, I reached out to workers like, are you vaccinated? Are you guys okay? Like, mm-hmm. and over time, I never got a single person saying I couldn't find an appointment. You know, mm-hmm. um, Everyone was able to get vaccinated who wanted it. And that's why I feel really great about eating outdoors. Right. Right. I think when Helen wrote her story, that was when New York was reopening indoor dining and nobody had gotten vaccinated. Right. Um, People were putting themselves at peril for what, like minimum wage jobs or like, you know, it didn't make sense for them to put their bodies on the line for this. And yet they had to, because otherwise they would lose their unemployment. Right. Like it, Mm -hmm. it was a lose, lose situation. Um, I think her work and the work of many like similar writers, like myself included, was really trying to highlight the the sort of economic fragility that made this choice, not a choice for so many food workers and how we right. should care about their welfare. If we care about food. Um, and more than just our own bodily pleasure, because that is again, like the most, the most selfish reason to go eat out. And often I don't think if you support a restaurant as an institution, like who are you willing to put in harm's way to do mm-hmm. that?
0: Right. That's really, that's, Totally. I think that's the reason why ultimately we didn't eat out during the pandemic. Um, I'm curious as a final note, on a more upbeat note, as San Francisco comes back online and people are going to be able to start traveling again, like what are the restaurants in San Francisco right now that you're most excited about or that you would tell people to eat at?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, let me think. There's so many. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of these places are outside of san francisco if that's okay sure um since we are a a region of many cities um in oakland there's a place called lion dance cafe that i really love and they do vegan singaporean italian cuisine which is very exciting it's a fusion of like the two founders like home cuisines um and they're a couple and they're together and they make really great food together um stuff like sandwiches with on like sesame focaccia with smoked seitan and mm. like mala broccoli. Um, and so I'm really excited to get there once they like open up, they've been doing takeout, um, exclusively. And so I really want to see what it's like to eat there. Um, I don't think they've ever done that since they opened. Um, so stuff like that where like, I want to see more dimensions of places, mm-hmm. you know, that have really only been offering food out of a box this past year. Um, yeah, it's, it's so great. Like there are so many places that are just totally like rejiggering what they do and they're, they're anticipating, you know, how, how we're going to open up and, and how to serve people safely. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just thrilled to eat like pasta fresh out of the pot yeah. from like anywhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My friend just went to San Francisco and loved rich table. Is that one of the good ones for you or? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's it is it's lovely. It's right. great.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, uh, so <laughs> thank you so much for letting me uh, analyze your lunch. Did you feel properly analyzed?
1: I think so. I think I got my money's worth.
0: Fantastic. And um, well, I hope to meet you in the real life someday when this is all over, and I come up there or you come down here.
1: I would love that. Yes. For Uh, sure. There's so many places in LA that I want to try.
0: Yeah, well maybe we'll go to Republic. It's so good. Uh, Okay. All right. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
1: ACast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. My name is John Kasich. I'm the former governor of Ohio, former presidential candidate. And I'm Jordan Klepper. I'm a comedian. We have a new podcast together called Kasich and Klepper from Acast and Treefort Media.
0: Why is Kasich first? Well, first of all, it's alphabetical. K-L. Uh, you, you, I, I understand. And I ran a whole state once, too, by the way. You ran a
1: mid-sized state, to be clear. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are going to think, oh, well, this is going to be about politics. No, it's not. It's going to be about life. We're going to talk about politics, I'm sure, but we're also going to talk about the things that affect us. And I might ask for fatherly advice of, like, how do you raise a child who won't become a Republican? (laughs) Welcome to Kasich and Klepper. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.